we are live from the empire of lies, an oasis of freedom of thought in the vast, in the vast desert that is the Biden administration. This is Lee Stranahan. Welcome to The Backstory. So we're joined today by producer Rod. Rod from Finley. How you doing, Rod? I'm doing all right, Lee. Can't complain. How about yourself? Okay, interesting deep dive show today. First off, in the first hour, we have our friend Ian Schilling coming at us live from London. Always fun to have Ian on the show. Then in hour two, Rob Law from the Center for Immigration Studies. Rob actually has a look at something I dare say no one's actually going to look at, which is how the new immigration green card policies created by the Ukrainian situation are actually going to affect immigration in this country. They've done a deep dive over CIS, right? Oh yeah, it's, for sure. And it's a lot that it's a lot that uh, I think people will be upset about and questioning. Yeah, and people should know about this. And we'll be taking your calls, 202-521-1320. It's the backstory. So there's a few things to talk about. We'll talk about some of the Ukraine stuff a little bit more with Ian and throughout the day. But uh, one story I saw today was, remember the germ investigation, Rob? Yeah, of course. But, but you... But... You have to remember it because it's not filling the news cycle every day. You don't hear much about the Durham investigation, do you? The news no, doesn't cover it. No. And uh, Michael Sussman's in court this week. I was actually thinking about going to to sit in tomorrow uh, for the for the trial. Well, that'd be interesting, and you should go down and do that. So. One thing has come out of this. Michael Sussman is the lawyer and Democratic operative who didn't tell the FBI he was the Democratic operative, but he is. And it's obvious. One thing came out. They were interviewing. Remember the story back in the Russiagate heyday about the Russian bank, Alpha Bank, was being secretly transmitted to by the Trump campaign staff. Remember? Remember that? It was a big story in the papers. Yeah, there were, they said there was uh, pings coming from Trump Tower to this Russian bank and that they had to investigate. Pretty much that was their predicate for investigating another piece of uh, investigating Donald Trump with his Russian collusion. And it seems we heard about it in the paper for weeks, Right. They were on that story all over the place. Months. I'd say months. Now, it turns out that the FBI agent who was doing some of the investigation in that has testified in the Sussman trial that, in fact, they followed up on that lead and dismissed it within something like 48 hours, within a couple of days. Almost immediately, they said, this doesn't look like a good lead. Did you have any idea that the FBI had immediately dismissed it? Because we heard about this for months, right? I would have thought yeah, they were no. still running yeah. it. Yes. And, it and Comey was out, still there. Comey was still there at that time. 
Yes, and it points out another way, in which case this is a failure of the media and also, and I'll, I'll, I'll draw an analogy to the war. The media currently gets a lot of their information from who? About the war. They're trying to keep track of the war and trying to report on it. But who's giving them their information? The answer is that Ukraine. Ukraine's giving them the information. Well, I have a feeling Ukraine's somewhat biased. In fact, we know that they're liars. In fact, stories like the Ghost of Kiev and Snake Island were lies, blatantly. But the media still gets their info from Ukraine. And that's how they form their narrative about the war and deliver them to the American and the British people. In this Russiagate story, the media was getting their information from Democratic operatives, right? And who, what, what could have possibly gone wrong with that? Who would have thought that Democratic operatives would have been lying about that story? It's, it's stunning. And it's a failure of the media. And also, right, you mentioned uh, Comey was there. Also of the FBI, whose department knew that this was bogus information. What say you, Rod? It's circular journalism, Lee. You know, it's just the thing that that plagues uh, America right now. We don't we don't have a real uh, we don't really have journalism in this country. The fourth estate is uh, it's just it's as poor as can be. You know what I mean? As far as the state is in, it's just uh, government mouthpiece. Whatever they say is right, and whatever you know, and even if when it's proven wrong, it's still right, and they just don't ever correct it or even uh, address it in conversation. You know. You know, uh, now January 6th, the talking point, you know, forget the Russia collusion that they talked about for about three years or the uh, impeachment of Trump over Ukraine. You know, January 6th is the worst point in American history where, you know, there was no weapons. You know what I mean? So it's just they don't they have so many lies that, that, you know, I I don't know how I don't know how we can function as a as a country because there's so many lies that we're dealing with. Yeah, and that's why Putin's phrase, the empire of lies, is fitting, and why I use it every day, and don't pay him royalties. So sue me, Vlad. But uh, that's why it's so fitting, because we are the empire of lies. And you're right, it's so multifaceted. And I would argue that our country doesn't function. I don't see a functioning country. Do you? Am I missing the functioning part? <laughs> no, that's that's the uh, that's the scary part because if it keeps getting worse and worse, you know, uh, how do you how do you steer the ship back on course? You know, uh, you know, uh, I saw the I think two days ago there was a report of um, you know what's going on in California and the district attorney and pretty much the criminals praising the you know the the LA district district attorney cuz you know they commit crimes and they get right back out so you know he's considered a homie now cuz he he lets them commit crime and people know this you know the criminals are the first one to know all these things so when you have criminals committing crime and not expecting any harsh punishment you know how does society function 
Right. And and as if things weren't bad enough in California with the homeless situation and the poop on the street and everything else, the crime, they're doing these follow homes. You've seen this, Rod, follow home robberies where they go to a nice restaurant and they see who's leaving. It's smart if you think about it. John Dillinger, the gangster, once said why he robbed banks. Do you know what he said? Uh, I believe it's because it's not your money, right? Or it's not the bank's money. It's because the banks have money. The reason he robbed banks is because that's where the money is. So these thieves, they become very enterprising. They go to a nice restaurant and look for someone driving a nice car. And they assume that's the person with some money. You follow me? And they're not looking for a person in a 75 Dodge Dart, an AMC Pacer. Although that could be a classic car now, I don't know. But, and they follow the people home. They assume nice car, nice restaurant, we might as well rob them. And then they follow it home. And when the person goes to the door, the thief goes with them. Now it's enterprising. But think about, can't be good for the restaurant business. Right, Rod? You wouldn't want to go out to yeah. a nice restaurant. Yeah, no, we just had a, uh, a carjacking yesterday in Philadelphia where a uh, 81-year-old man, he was in a Dodge Charger, went into the restaurant to, I guess, pick up his food real quick. 18-year-old jumps in the back of the car, waits for him. And then, you know, pulls a gun out and carjacks the guy. So I know, I know exactly what you're saying. You see a nice car, you see them going to a certain location, they become they become a mark, you know what I mean? Like, so now that's, they become a target. And, you know, this is like, uh, you know, I can't even explain, because it's kind of like Grand Theft Auto in real life, you know, the, the video game. It's just like in, in real life it's happening and there's not a, it's not, it's not being, it's not being addressed at all. And uh, by any major city you know we had Lori Lightfoot uh she put up a, a post on Twitter a couple of days ago where she was in Texas reading a banned book that's in Texas while there was you know 20 people shot that same day you know she's she's worried about banned books in Texas Lee was was it a a key novel about gay sex I'm assuming it was one of those children's books that they're not, you know, I guess they banned uh, children's. I, 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 uh, she, it's in the picture. You can see it. But uh, and then and then in, within the pictures, other books that are being banned so that the library kind of like promotes it like these are the banned books. Yes, right. Because that's weird that they would want to ban books. I mean, I, I've seen some of these books that they banned. And you've seen them, too, Rod, right? I understand what's going on. I understand there's some books you don't want in a library full of kids. Agreed? Oh, 100%. When I was in the libraries and in the public schools of Philly, I mean, the most uh, sexualized thing you would see was uh, maybe a kiss on the lips between, you know, two adults or two kids in a book. But the stuff now is way over the top. It's pretty much porn. Porn. In a uh, in kitty in kitty books, so it's porn for kids. No, and it's weird. I've got to say, it's also weird. And that's weird of Lightfoot busy reading 
But it's easier to look at than the shootings going on in Chicago. Now, the other thing I was thinking about, we've, I was thinking about two fellows you've heard of, Joe Rogan and Elon Musk. You've heard of them, right? Yes, of course. Now, I say Joe and Elon are two of the central figures. They're two of the people most on people's minds. Would you agree? Like Elon Musk, suddenly everybody's thinking about Elon Musk all the time. You know what I'm saying? Right, right. yeah, 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 yeah. And Joe well, I would, Rogan. I would, yeah, I would, yeah, I would agree with you that because Joe has the platform where he brings both sides, kind of like we do here on the backstory and on Sputnik. We bring people from both spectrums, you know, what people consider left and right. And uh, Joe Rogan does the same exact thing. Uh, sometimes it even angers his audience, like, you know, why would you bring this person on? I mean, he's, he's had Cenk Uger on and, uh, you know, uh, Bernie Sanders and so on and so on. So he, he has people from both spectrums. So, he, you know, he gives people the, uh, the full spectrum of, of a political aspect that they want to hear. Well, I think he he voted for Sanders in 16, didn't he? I think he did say he voted for Sanders, yeah. I think he was a Bernie bro in 16. So I was thinking about Elon Musk and Joe Rogan. And also, I think it's fair to say that they've inspired a lot of hatred on the left. Mental hatred of people trying to cancel them. I saw Elon Musk referred to as a white supremacist the other day on Twitter. Someone was saying he's a racist, and Joe Rogan has been, of course, accused of that. Now, right, so the the left hates him, and a lot of Democrats, and by left, I mean a lot of Democrats hate them. The, the grassroots Democrats, they've been taught that you should hate these people. You notice that? Unhinged hatred. Oh yeah, for sure, for sure. And I think I think they also were angered that uh, that uh, Joe Rogan, when they put out the that long video of him saying you know the N word in different contexts, um, that it didn't it didn't kill his career. That they were really mad that that didn't torpedo his career. It actually made him more popular because he addressed it uh, head on. So uh, yeah, then so that makes him even crazier that it didn't it didn't work. No, I was thinking about this. So here's another riddle about Elon and Joe. If you had to define Joe Rogan in Elon Musk politics, and you can use statements they made and things they, about the running record, how would you define those two gentlemen's politics? I would say as far as Joe, I've, I've listened to Joe over the years because, you know, big martial arts. He's a lifelong martial artist like myself. So, um, I would say he's center left with a little libertarian streak. Right, center left. Right. But I think I think broadly it's true and the libertarian streak is he's not a guy who would ban all abortions, for instance. Right. And center left. And Elon Musk, who voted for Obama, I would would you also define him as center left? Yeah, if you remember, he posted that picture of himself. He considered himself center left, and that the left has gone so far over that now he's considered the right on the right. And both of them 
are center-left people who the left absolutely hates. And they have sane views. What I mean by that is, you know, Joe Rogan, they hate him, you know, Saints going after him for talking about trans issues. Well, he's not saying he wants to ban trans people or anything like that. But he said some of this stuff is nuts. Right? For instance, transgender athletics, he questions. <laughs> and so do a lot of people question that. Isn't it fascinating that the most hated people are people from the center? <laughs> Forgive me. Right. But isn't it fascinating that the most hated people are people from the center left? Yeah, no, I think that is a, that you put it that way, that, that you know, that they have that emotional hate and animus for, you know, people like Elon and Joe Rogan, who, I mean, you can just look at their, the statements they made over the years, you know, Joe Rogan, he's uh, in favor of a universal basic income, you know, I don't think that's what most people on the right or maybe even libertarians would approve of that, but that's, he said something, he said stuff like that, that the left would be in favor of, but they still have this emotional hate, you know what I'm saying? Like this real, like, like he's their father and he left and he just doesn't, you know what I mean? It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, and let me put the Democrats on blast here. For somebody who's center left, there is no politician on the world stage in America. Let's just research America. There's no politician that speaks for you. I'd say maybe the closest one is a guy like Joe Manchin. But you notice the Democrats hate his guts. Right? Yeah, the they'll most, be going to his house next year. Yeah, the most demonized Democrat is Joe Manchin. So obviously Elon Musk and Joe Rogan have millions of people who like their stuff. And I would say we talked about Russell Brand even on the show. I would classify Russell Brand as center-left. He's not American, but still close enough. Would you put him in that category, too? Yeah, I would put him center-left now. Uh, I remember Russell Brand years ago. He used to uh, – he wasn't doing a podcast, but he would do a lot of uh, appearances and interviews. I would say he was left – a few years ago, maybe like 10 years ago, he was left-left, but now he's considered center-left. And I, I would put other people in that category, Glenn, 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 Glenn Greenwald. Glenn Greenwald is hated. Democrats absolutely hate him. And he's referred to because he goes on Fox. And do you know why he goes on Fox? Because they have him on. He's not getting the invites from MSNBC. Do you know what I mean? If you right, get, yeah, they don't want to, they don't want to put his voice out there to people and his his uh, his journalism. And Glenn Greenwald, the journalist, is on the left, but because he's not on the nutty left, the Democrat machine whips up a frenzy of hatred against him. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah, for sure. They call him, uh, you know, right wing. And I would say, uh, no, I don't think even Glenn Rural puts himself, he, he puts a disclaimer out there. You know, when he goes on Fox, he's like, look, I'm not a conservative. 
you know, I'm not a Republican. So he puts he puts himself out there like, look, this is where I stand politically, and you know, but I come on Fox and I give my take. So I don't know what the hate the hate is, and also is you know the hate wouldn't that by the left standard make them homophobic since Glenn is gay? You know what I'm saying? Well, they don't apply the same standards across the board. Do you know I I noticed about this? The transgender issue is very controversial, but who's I would argue the most famous transgender person in the world? Uh, Bruce Jenner now, Kate, you know, now known as Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner. But what do they think of Caitlyn Jenner? Oh, they think he's misogynistic and a racist now. Right. Because, uh, and again, he's an example of a person who's, Caitlyn Jenner's a transgender person, period. So he's in favor of transgender people. But he said stuff like, he doesn't see guys competing with women in athletics. So he's hated. So the most famous high-profile transgender person is on the outs with him. Now, what this shows people, I think, the case of Greenwald and the case of Russell Brand and Rogan and Elon Musk shows people that the truly tolerant people are on the right. You hear people say, I mean, they may criticize, but people listen to them. People don't say, no, I don't want to hear Joe Rogan. He voted for Elon Musk in 16. I don't want to hear his opinions. People on the right are open to hearing his ideas. And Russell Brand and Elon Musk and Glenn Greenwald. The tolerant people are Republicans now. There's no doubt in my mind. The tolerant people, actually tolerant, are Republicans. Is that accurate, do you think, Rod? Yeah, no, 100%. 100% on that. And um, uh, there was a debate between uh, Gore Vidal, and I'm forgetting the second person, and uh, I don't know why I'm blanking on it, but the left don't do debates anymore. They, you know what I mean? By all costs, they stay away from any type of debate. And you see the people on the right even debate within themselves. Uh, you had, uh, what was it, Robert Barnes and uh, uh, I'm forgetting. Yeah, yeah, Nick Fuentes debate. So that's in, in, you know, that's two people who will consider themselves on the right debating, and but the left don't even do it within themselves. You know what I mean? They either there's a hundred percent consent on what they say, or you're whatever they now label you. And um, just just to piggyback off your trans issue, you know, I've started to kind of look at it like this: all this, you know, trans talk we had ever since, especially since the Biden administration just took over, it has diminished women, like actual biological women. And just just think about where we are now and where, you know, Abbott um, said that it's going to take six to eight weeks for them to even produce any type of uh, baby formula. So there's women who have had children or, you know, let's say they're two month baby now. So it'd be hard for them to reverse and, you know, start breastfeeding. They're waiting for this formula. And you're talking about two months. You know what I mean? Like that's it's diminished the importance of women and children because the left puts trans ahead of them. And the Biden administration said that too. They said six to eight weeks. And by the way, I assume if they're saying six to eight weeks, it's likely to be more like eight to 12. Is that a safe assumption? 
Yeah, and 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 like you know, um, with these WIC programs, they get their chunk of these baby formula, so that's you automatically, you know, there's a chunk taken away. And if I don't know if you saw, there was a congresswoman down in Texas who showed that they're also buying and and or uh, taking these baby formula and having them stored for uh, the the migrants coming across the border. So that's two issues in one right there. You know, the WIC gets their chunk, and the government obviously taking their chunk for women who are pregnant uh, coming across the border. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And they have formula at the border for that reason, and they don't have it at the Walmart locally, right? 50 states have 50% of the formula they should have. There are empty store shelves here in Sioux Falls. Uh, one of the states has been South Dakota. And that's a real world issue. And there's no concern about it. And the person who's bringing it up, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene is an example of a bold feminist bringing up a woman's issue on the floor of the Congress. She's an example. They, they hate her guts. Right? They want to see her not just lose but be humiliated. And same with Lauren Bowler. They're nuts over the fact that she's saying she's a woman, not a woman, but a woman with a Y. You seen that? Yeah, I saw that. There's an X now in the place of the A for woman. Is that what what you're talking about? I saw that on Twitter. Yeah, and she's saying, no, I'm a woman. Spelled normally. And I see people attacking her. This state that we have, where the tolerant people are on the right, I would say, I would, let me put it like this. Who would you say you're more likely to attract votes to? A Democratic candidate who's attracting Republican votes, or a Republican candidate attacking Democrat votes. They have to have the right positions. But which one is more possible, does it seem? Oh, definitely it would be the Republican attacking the Democrat uh, positions. No, and, and, and my point is, you could run as a Democrat, and I, if you took the right positions, I would expect you could get some Republican votes. Republicans are actually... I'm using tolerant in the sense of being open to other ideas. Republicans have shown they're more open to left-wing ideas. Not all of them. And not the extreme ones that really I don't think anyone's in favor of. But clearly, there's an opening there. If someone wanted to come on the stage now and be a sane Democrat, they would have a willing audience of people, Democrat and Republican, who listen to them, except they'd be attacked by the Democratic establishment. Democratic establishment wants only the most extreme forms of their ideas. Does that, is that not obvious, Raj? Yeah, Tulsi, yeah, Tulsi Gabbard would be the, uh, the example. Yeah, another example. So let's go to a short break. When we come back, we'll talk to Ian Schilling about the Russians' great victory in Mariupol and how it's being portrayed in the press. 
here on The Backstory. Backstory, live from the Empire of Lies, 105.5 FM, AM 1390, the center of the Empire of Lies, Washington, D.C. That's where we're on the radio. Joining us now from across the pond, Ian Schilling, geopolitical and otherwise analyst. Hey, Ian, how you doing? I'm doing great. Now, I'll bet I'm not going to try to make you jealous, but... Joe Biden announced yesterday that test kits for COVID are available here again in the States. Uh, Anyone, Rod, you should see this. You can order up to eight test kits and get them sent to you free. Eight per person. So again, I'm not sure I make you feel bad, but we have all the test kits we can eat here, Ian. Now, I noticed that the COVID narrative is starting to come back into the but I'm not seeing, you know, they're talking about COVID season starting to come up again, but they're saying they don't expect to be as harsh as Omicron, which was not that harsh, it turned out. Is COVID season coming back in the UK? Uh, well, it's sort of, it's sort of level. It's it, it went down from the previous peak, but it's never gone down very low, so... But they've stopped testing now. They've stopped all the stopped most of the testing. There's no free tests in the UK anymore. So there's there's you know if they do less testing, they'll find less cases, won't they? They'll get less positive tests. That's but right. The deaths, it seems the, the deaths are still going. I mean they're higher than they were in this time last year. Uh, it's because because of the vax. The vax makes people more likely to die. It's wrecking people's immune systems. People are dying. All these, all, the Omicron was was ninety percent less dangerous than Delta, the one that went before it, because it was milder. It's just like the flu, Omicron, right? But there was still quite a lot of people died from it, and a lot of them were vexed. So. I mean, it's terrible what what they've done. All these booster shots—they're wrecking people's immune systems. The, the jab, the jab is making things worse. Right? They're jabbing people for the virus that was around in February 2020, which doesn't exist anymore. And they say that the, you get the vaccine and it raises your antibody levels. Yeah, antibodies against a virus that doesn't exist, and the spike protein has massively mutated, and it doesn't—it doesn't stop it. So well, it does seem like people it's are, mutated. Have you seen this, Ian? It seems to mutate in a way where it's easier to catch, but it's less severe. Is that right? Yeah, well, that's what normally happens to viruses because that's what they do to survive. I mean, if viruses kill, pe- kill people too quickly, then they don't have a chance to spread. So an ideal thing for the virus is, is not to kill people, but to be easily transmitted. That's that's the best way they can spread. And what, whatever version of the virus does that will take over and become the dominant strain, right? Because because it will just spread more. 
So of course that's going to become the dominant strain, and that that will then phase out phase out other other versions of it. And of course, the media here have been talking for a couple of weeks a million deaths associated with COVID in the United States. A million deaths. They've said that over and over. But do you think they have an accurate number on how many deaths were caused by COVID nineteen? Do you think that million number is accurate anyway? Of course it's not. It's no way accurate. The official definition of a COVID death is any death within 28 days of a positive test. Right? So there was a murder-suicide somewhere in the States 18 months ago. Some husband shot his wife. And because they both tested positive for COVID a couple of weeks before, and they went down as a COVID death. I mean, it's it's total that they they've over they've overstated the deaths from COVID by ten times, right? They only about ten percent of the people who died from COVID. It's only about ten percent of the number, right? So when they say a million, then that's about a hundred thousand people died from COVID. Right? And not from something else, not from a heart attack or from diabetes or Alzheimer's or any of the other thing, cancer. I mean, people people die all the time from a whole host of conditions. Just because you test positive with COVID doesn't mean you die of COVID. And the whole thing has been a fraud from the start. This is the WHO's definition, the WHO fraudulently stated a definition that it was any death within 28 days of a positive test. Well, that's never been done for anything before. You put the cause of death as the most likely cause, right? What actually caused the person to die? And then the, the um, correlating health factors, right, that they might have as, as, as contributing factors. But that's not what they did with COVID. All right, so what what... In, what in ninety percent or so of the deaths, what they should have said was this person died of co of cancer, and they also had COVID, right? But it would have been a cancer death because they would be, you know, they'd been given three months to live three months ago. And now they've died of cancer, right? Or they died of a heart attack, right? They should have gone down as a heart attack, not a COVID death. But this 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 is a whole fraud from the start to panic people and to put, do all these lockdowns. I mean, because we knew in February 2020 from the Diamond Princess, that cruise ship that got COVID and was then quarantined off Japan in February 2020, right? Not many of the passengers died of COVID, right? Only about a third of them caught it. And they were weighted to the elderly because that's what cruise passengers are. They're mostly people over 50 go on cruises, aren't they? Right? And we knew that the, the, the fatality rate was about 0.2% from that cruise ship. Right? And that's uh, the, the flu is 0.1 to 0.25% death rate. So it's absolutely similar to the flu. Uh, but the whole world got turned upside down because they wanted to sell these vaccines. That's why they did it. They, they had the back. Bill Gates was saying back in March and April 2020 that the, we're never going to go back to normal until almost the entire world has been jabbed. 
That's what he was saying. So it was all a scam to get to, to push these vaccines, which which are not safety tested. All this mRNA technology has never been used on humans, never been properly tested. It would take 10 years to find out all the side effects, which we are now finding out with myocarditis and blood clots and brain damage and nerve damage and paralysis and Guillain-Barre disease and loads of other things as well that people are all reporting to, to the reporting system like theirs in the US and the yellow card system in the UK and the EU's reporting system. But they're all covering it up, right? If, if they were serious about health safety, they would be autopsy, autopsying anybody who died within 28 days of, of a vaccine and see what the cause was and see what health conditions they had and see if they, see if they had... Um, any blood clots or do a D-dimer test, which which tests you or troponin levels, I don't know where it is, but puts you more risk of heart disease, heart inflammation, a heart attack, and see if that was the cause. But they're covering it up. They're not doing autopsies. They're trying to deny. No way. They're trying to deny all these deaths are down, down to the vaccine. But at the death rate in the US, the death rate... For 25 to 54-year-olds has doubled in 2022 compared to the average for previous years. Right? Doubled. Twice as many people, young to middle-aged people, are dying in the US compared to normal. Right? But no, all the life insurance companies are reporting these stats. Life insurance companies, because it's their job to know what the risk is, isn't it? And they're reporting... That the, the number of people, 25 to 54-year-old people, are, the, the death rate's doubled. Uh, and the only possible explanation has got to be the COVID jab, because they're not all dying of COVID, right? COVID's a tiny amount of the deaths of that age group, tiny. So it's got right, to be down to the, right. to the vaccine, because that's the only, only, <laughs> the only possible possible cause but of course the media doesn't have time to get the covid story right because they're so busy as war correspondents in ukraine right they're so busy <laughs> doing accurate reporting in ukraine no fake so, news but, report on ukraine as well yes well so let's let's talk about that the british media and the u.s media reported the russians decisive victory in mariupol they won, and not only that, they've, they've won for a month. And them being holed up in the Avisol plant, the steel plant, wasn't a sign of defending anything or holding up. They were just there refusing to give up, right? Yeah. But yeah. as soon as they did surrender, it was called an evacuation. And the U.S. <laughs> and the U.K. media... Right. What do you think of that? I mean, well, the, an order obviously went out to all the all the media companies. It must have been an order saying, "Don't call it surrender. Call it evacuation." But it's obviously a surrender. The, these these Nazis, the Azov Nazis, in the, in that in those bunkers underneath the steel steel plant, have been holed up for a month. They're completely surrounded. They had no chance of of surviving it, did they? And, and uh, 
the Russians didn't want to storm it because it's like storming nuclear bunkers. The Russians would have lost a load of troops if they tried to storm it. So they just laid siege to it, didn't they? There's no food going in. There's no ammunition going in. So eventually they were going to have to give up. They weren't going to starve to death voluntarily. I don't know where they were getting water from. Where did they get the water from? I don't know what was it down there. But, but I mean, they didn't have food, they didn't have medicine, and they didn't have any ammunition. So they were going to, going to have to give up eventually, and the Russians were just waiting them out. And we didn't know how long it was going to take, because we didn't know how, long, how many supplies were down there, did we? But now, now a thousand of... of now a thousand of them have surrendered, or nearly a thousand, haven't they, in the last three days? There was seven hundred or something yesterday. It's not and they're all being, take, all being taken to Russian territory, aren't they? In buses and all being interrogated, and they'll all be filtered out. They're all all the Russians will be filtered out. So there's some civilians. There'll be some Ukrainian ordinary Ukrainian soldiers and conscripts. So uh, so the civilians will be let go. And the Ukraine conscripts and Ukraine ordinary army, uh, they'll be interrogated. And if they, they're found to be ordinary Ukrainian soldiers, they'll be held as POWs and then do a prisoner swap on them. But all the neo-Nazis, they'll be held and prosecuted for war crimes. Right? And the senior, senior members, and there's rumoured to be NATO and Western ex-military or current military with them. Right, there's the rumour is we don't know if it's true, but they, if that's true, that's going to be a propaganda coup for the Russians because they'll say that well, NATO's been involved in the war all the time. Look, there's this, there's this colonel or this general we've captured. He's American general. Uh, be taken to to Moscow now and interrogated by the FSB. Right, and all all the ordinary neo-Nazis will be prosecuted for war crimes for shelling the Donbass and the civilians in the Donbass for the last eight years. So they'll be prosecuted for those type of war crimes and any other recent crimes that they've they've documented because the the, the Azov they they were just killing civilians right, left, and centre. They didn't take didn't care that, about the people who lived in Mariupol or anywhere around it, do they? They hate them. They want to wipe out the Russians. But I think about. Uh, I can't even count it. Four or five, at least, major narratives of this war fell apart when they surrendered. First off, the idea that the Ukrainians were winning, even in Mariupol, I saw a lot of pro-Ukrainian people with flags in their avatars saying that they were holding off the Russians. No, they were hiding. Yes. Right, they're hiding. They're hiding. bunkers. Yeah, eight stories down or something, these things, these bunkers go. Yeah. Right, that's one narrative, that they were winning. But another narrative, that they were going to hold out forever. They're making these guys out to be superhuman. Like, these soldiers, they're so brave and love Ukraine so much that they'll never possibly surrender. Well, it turned out they surrendered. And yes. Uh, another another of the narratives that broke apart was the narratives that largely Ukrainians winning. And I think it showed that so much of what the media has been saying, are, did you see too many people, people, I mean, 
who actually believed that the Ukrainians evacuated, well, everyone I saw immediately knew, even on Twitter and stuff like that, they immediately knew that the Ukrainians were lying. Everybody, yeah. they didn't fool There's anybody. There's loads of Twitter which, posts, yeah. Yeah, for once, they haven't censored it, have they? There's loads of Twitter posts saying this wasn't an evacuation, this is a surrender. Uh, so there's lots of people posting that on Twitter. And usually Twitter puts out a warning saying, this is, this is not correct. The official narrative is this. <laughs> they can't, they no. can't even justify that, can they? can they? I mean, there's all pictures of them loading them, loading them onto buses marked with Z because that's the Russian symbol, isn't it, for victory or something. And then they're being transported 50 miles east into into Donetsk, and then they're, they're going to be held there and processed. Well, they won't be evacuating from. They won't be evacuating no, from Moscow. No, they won't be evacuating. They, I mean, the Russians are going to hold them in POW camps, prison camps of some description, either in Russia or in eastern Ukraine. I don't know where. Right, and they'll be held. And the ordinary, the, I mean, the Ukrainian con, conscripts, the Russians don't want don't want to inflict any injury or pain on on the, all the Ukrainian conscripts because yeah, that's not they who they're fighting. So they'll release that they'll do prisoner swaps with Russian POWs for them. But all, the, 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 Nazis, the Nazis, I mean, they're all stripping them naked, right? The Russians are stripping them naked and uh, seeing if they've got any Nazi tattoos or Nazi symbols on them. Because a load of them have, haven't they? So they're pretty easy to identify. <laughs> so they're not going to get away. Now, now, Boris Johnson from the UK went over to Ukraine a few weeks ago. And essentially, I think he told Zelensky, obviously, don't surrender. Don't negotiate with he Russia. He told Zelensky to not negotiate, to end the negotiations. And then the negotiations have ended, haven't they? They were peace talks. I mean, whether they would have gone anywhere, I don't know. But they were, you know, they had three or so peace talks, didn't they, in Belarus and different places, right, to try and try and get an agreement. But Boris Johnson, neocon warmonger, war criminal, he went over to Ukraine and told us that there's a Zelensky not to negotiate on anything. Now, and as I understand the way this went down Mariupol, the initial surrenders of troops was not authorized by the Ukrainian government. Initially, about 200 no. of them just said on their own, we're going to surrender because we don't want to die. And then once they started surrendering, Ukraine realized they had a situation in their hands because yeah. – and the, is that what you heard too? That Ukraine yes. eventually that's exact, that's said – That's exactly right. I mean they've been, been troops surrendering in dribs and drabs for, for the last month, haven't they, in, in batches of 50 or whatever. But then there were suddenly 200-odd all, all surrendered with the, with the wounded, didn't they, on Monday or something. So they all surrendered, and then once once Kiev saw that they were all going to surrender, then they issued a, issued the order to surrender, which they were already doing. <laughs> no, exactly right. It's a brilliant move. What a surrender! What I don't a know surrender. how many left. I don't know how many are left in the bunker. I don't know if they all cleared out because a thousand of them surrendered, but there were there were people were t saying that there's two thousand down there a couple of weeks ago. So uh, is there still a thousand left, or are they cleared out? I don't know. Now, do you think we're, this is going to 
have a big effect on the war in general, because if Ukrainian soldiers are hearing, if you're a Ukrainian troop somewhere in the Donbass and you hear that other people have surrendered, are you going to keep fighting in a, a situation where you can't win? Well, it's a morale issue, have, and they're bound, bound to lose morale over it, aren't they? Whether I mean, how much, we don't know, do we? But, I mean, the Russians have been trying to, sur trying to surround all those tens of thousands of troops in the Donbass, whether it's 60,000 or 100,000, or whether that was the starting number or how many are left, I don't know. But there's, there's a large number, and these, these are the crack Ukrainian army troops, aren't they? Uh, they're not the, the conscript. This is this is the regular army down there. Uh, but yes. I mean, uh, Russia, Russia is just just bombarding them with artillery now to to clean them out. They're not trying to advance much because that costs troops, doesn't it? It's like it's like World War One fighting. You t if you if you went over the top of the trenches, then you got massacred, didn't you? So they tried to but to um, bomb the enemy into submission with with. Constant artillery barrages, didn't they? Which is what the Russians are trying to do to the Ukraine army. Because the Ukraine army can't move anywhere. And we're saying, not that Britain is part of the EU anymore, because they Brexited. But the EU has recently capitulated on the issue of buying with rubles Russian energy. And huh. I see capitulation. Now, in some ways, I see... Defiance, there's the EU announced that they're going to be spending $300 billion or something getting independent of Russian oil and gas. But that's going to take a while, right? Uh, Meanwhile, yeah. what are you paying for petrol? You're talking petrol? 18 months or years, aren't you? I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Dan. I'm talking 18 months or years. You've got. To, I mean, if you're gonna gonna go away from Russian oil and gas, you've got to build LNG terminals, which yeah, it doesn't cheap, and you've got to have a, quite a big area to build it on, and you've got to have lots of them, right? And it will cost about three times as LNG gas from Qatar or the US costs about three times as much as it does for Russian pipeline gas because of the cost of transport in it. So that's what, I mean, that's another reason why the energy prices are going to go up because it costs a hell of a lot more to, to import LNG gas than it does Russian pipeline gas. And it's not not just a question of swapping the oil out for one one country to another, because each each country or supplier has got a certain grade of oil. And if you're if you're importing all your oil from Russia or a lot of it, then your refinery is going to be set up to process Russian oil. How much sulfur it's got, how heavy it is, or how light it is. Right, so you can't just suddenly swap Russian oil for Kuwaiti oil or something. Now, it doesn't work like that, because Kuwait's oil is light, right? but Russian oil is heavier. Right? So you've then got to, you've got to then do your refineries and your cracking towers. Right? As uh, Orban in the Hungary right, has said, well, if we, we, if we are going to end getting Russian oil, because at the moment 65% of Hungary's oil comes through a pipeline from Russia, 
So Orban said, well, to avoid Russian oil imported from something else, we'd, we'd need to spend 18 billion euros on changing all our refineries and whatnot. Right, and this is Hungary. I mean, Hungary is fairly small. So then it's going to cost the same for all the other countries as well, especially the Eastern European ones that are more reliant on Russian oil. Right, so you've got, you've got, I mean, Poland is just committing suicide over all this. I mean, it's just ridiculous what they're doing. But, I mean, countries like Slovakia, Slovakia won't go in with the oil ban either because they're dependent on Russian gas and oil as well. And they're a landlocked country. They haven't got a port that they can import it from. I mean, Holland can import from anywhere, from Rotterdam, can't it, in places. So they can import, import from anywhere. Right? So France can import from anywhere. But Slovakia can't, can it? <laughs> it's, it's landlocked. So it's Hungary. And, of course, so this has Austria. an impact on, on injury. We have Germany now. The manufacturer, I believe it's Bosch, said they're going to shut down a lot of factories because yeah. they can't afford to manufacture. And that's going to change. A lot of Germany's economy has been based on internal manufacturing from some of these electronics and other Appliance makers, right? Yeah, and also heavy, heavy industrial stuff like trains, right? And a load of cars. I don't know. Germany makes loads of cars and trains and nuclear plants and all sorts of stuff. But I, I mean, anything, anything that's got competitors, then Germany is going to lose out on because if their energy costs are suddenly tripled, then they're going to lose out to, to places like, like South Korea or China or whatever, aren't they? Now, what's uh, now? How's this going to impact Europe? Is this going to remake Europe? Because Germany has been the dominant economic power in the EU. If they can't handle that anymore, and it seems like it's going to change Germany in a way that they're not going to come back from, how's that going to affect Europe? Europe's going to go into a deep, deep depression. It's going to go into economic depression. It's, it's. Caused by their own stupid policies, economic economic suicide by banning Russian oil and gas, by and uh, you know increase increasing the price of energy. I mean, Europe Europe is what is about the biggest energy importer going, isn't it? <laughs> so we're going to ban the cheapest form of energy and <laughs> and pay three times more for it. It's just absolutely insane. But, I mean, they're all being pressured by the U.S. to go along with it. But, I, I mean, America, America, the Americans aren't going to be so effective because America's almost neutral in energy, isn't it? With, with Mexico and Canada, it's, it's, it's energy, energy independent. It's got sufficient. Right? But Europe, Europe has to import 90% of its energy. So Europe's just going to get devastated all over Europe. The EU is just just going to going to it's just going to go into economic collapse, right? And so you know, six months a year's time, the, the unemployment and we've now got high inflation, but that's only been going for a while. Right? This this we're now in a situation in the 1970s, in the last oil crisis when Saudi Arabia cut off the oil, didn't they, in 1973 and 1979 and whatever, and there's all queues at the petrol stations, at the gas stations, wasn't there? And people couldn't get um, 
get ca- gas for their cars, and there was a load of unemployment, and there was stagflation, there was 20% inflation, and uh, economic economic recession. That's what we're headed for in the next six to 12 months, all over Europe. And America's not going not gonna to avoid it as well, because all their, all their exports to Europe will go down, and, and the energy costs is affecting Americans. I mean, if you double the price of the pump, the gas pump for Americans, and the American economy is going to go down as well, and then they're going to get their electricity bills, and that will order skyrocketed. Great analysis by Ian Schilling. Ian, tell people where they can find your stuff, because you've had to move around a bit online, right? Yeah, I'm on Telegram as Ian56, and I'm on Getter as Ian56A. Ian Schilling, great analysis. Always a pleasure to talk to you, sir. Take care. It's okay, late there. You might want to get to bed. <laughs> Cheers. Not that late. <laughs> That's good. You still have the pups. Ian Schilling. When we come back, we'll have more on the backstory. of lies, a vast oasis of truth and free from censorship in the vast oasis, the vast wasteland that is the Biden administration. I'm Lee Stranahan, and this is The Backstory. Always great to talk to Ian Schilling. He knows a variety of things. You notice that, Rod? Yeah, he does, and uh, Europe's in for a long, hard road of, of uh, depression, recession, and energy crisis. And I'm, I think Europe is not going to want to put up with that for too long. The people aren't going to want to put up with that. And at a certain point, Europe is going to have to buck the U.S. I, I think they will have no choice but to fight back against the U.S. that's dragged the world in this situation between Ukraine and Russia, starting in 2014, when they overthrew the government of Ukraine, the democratically elected government. What say you, Rod? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, you know, unfortunately we have a uh, uninformed or a uh, misinformed population here in America. And you know, uh, when, when this is laid out in a proper way for people to digest, they're going to be also upset over here. And, you know, for these politicians who have supported Ukraine, you know, we stand with Ukraine. Well, I don't know where you're going to lay down after people realize that it's your fault for these politicians. Well, and oh, I'll talk about that in a second. But let me say that coming up this hour, Rob Law from the Center for Immigration Studies talking about a misunderstood and little thought about idea, how this will affect U.S. immigration policy, this war in Ukraine. We'll be talking a lot about that later in the hour. This is the backstory. So, uh, Rod, I was talking to Ian about a number of the narratives that have fallen apart. Have you heard what they're going to do with Mariupol now? Have you heard the future plans? Um, I I feel like I did, but I don't remember them at this moment. I was more. They're going to make it a resort town. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> no, I didn't hear that one. I didn't hear that. No, I'm, and Russia's going to help. And if you think about it, it's, it's on the Black Sea, and it's they're going to have to rebuild the town. A number of the houses there, I think about a third of them, that were largely shelled by Ukraine, they are not going to be able to be rebuilt. So there's going to be a lot of new construction in Mariupol, right? It's going to be a new city built. Right, yeah. But if the lies that we've been hearing from the American media were true, and if Russia were just at war with Ukraine, what would they do with Mariupol? They'd put it into the ground and put salt on the ground, right? I mean, they wouldn't build a resort there. They'd, they'd devastate it. That's what we're led to believe, right? Exactly, yeah. Well, what's going to happen is they're going to rebuild the town. And gradually, words and pictures about that. And they're going to go, people are going to go, well, why is Russia rebuilding its town? And people will say they're happier. You've seen a lot of people live there. And they won't be able to explain it. This is another way the U.S. narrative about Mariupol, the the U.S. narrative about Crimea fell apart very quickly. Because they saw that the people in Crimea were happy to be part of Russia, wanted to rejoin Russia. If you're holding people hostage, or if you annex against their will, people, there'll be protests or something. People won't be happy, but people are very happy in Crimea. And there's lots of pictures that come out. And I think gradually, I think gradually people are going to realize that Mariupol. Does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, no. The way you the way you ask that question, like, what, what are people going to think when uh, Russia's rebuilding the town? When they've been, you know, when here in America they're monsters. The the Russians are, they're, they're the monsters. That they're, they're, you know, what I mean, that they're, they're genetically they're not balanced like we are. That's that's what we've been hearing in the news and all this craziness. Then people aren't they don't know how to digest this. You know what I mean? Mentally, it's just like that doesn't make any sense. You know, we're not. You know, we rebuild roads in Afghanistan and and rebomb them while they're about to make a resort town in Mariupol. So. And do you know what they're going to do with the aerosol plant, the steel plant, where these Nazis were holed up? It's going to be a park. They've always said what their plan is. They're going to make it into a park. They're not going to rebuild the steel plant. And by the way, it's significant because it was a significant steel plant for Ukraine, which allowed them to do manufacturing, heavy manufacturing, right? Ukraine lost that. Ukraine lost that ability to process steel in Avastol. And they're not going to be processing it at a park. And Russia's got plenty of places they can process steel. So you watch. This is going to cause, it's a, I think this could be a turning point for the war. And I, I don't want to be too optimistic about it. But I think this is a significant turning point for the war in terms of the narrative falling apart. And also, Mariupol is the biggest battle. Do you agree? In the Ukraine so far, on either side, 
this is the biggest battle that Russia faced, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I feel like we've been talking about Mariupol for at least two months. I mean, almost the entirety of it, I guess you would say. So, yeah, that'd be the bit, the longest battle because these guys were uh, trying to, trying to uh, I guess, in their own mind, trying to wait out the Russian army, but uh, the Russian military. But, I mean, they were just starving themselves to death. So they had to, they had to, they had to, uh, No, right. And they could have made them quit a couple weeks earlier, possibly, but they would have cost Russian lives. No, no doubt. If they'd sent in troops to do hand-to-hand fighting, something like that, they would have possibly ended the siege, the cowardice siege, the cowering. Let me put it like that. They're, they were cowering there. But they could have ended it a little sooner but at the cost of Russian lives. And they made a determination that they wanted to lose as few Russian troops as possible. And I haven't heard about heavy Russian losses. Have you? Waiting them out. Oh, no, not in this case. No, I've heard of Russian uh, lives lost, but not in this case of, uh, at this Azovstal steel plant, no. Right. So Russia, I think, made the right choice for everybody, including the families of those troops, and and they got them out anyway. And waiting an extra couple of weeks was worth it because you see what I'm saying? They decided it was not worth, worth Russian lives. And they said that. And I'm sure the Russian people will appreciate that. What do you think, Rod? Yeah, no, for sure. And I, I just saw that uh, Sonia, who we had on uh, about two weeks ago, she just posted a video today so as of her recent trip to Mariupol. So, you know, I'd love to have her back on and, and have her uh, say what, you know, what she saw firsthand and from the people that were there. And, you know, so we don't have to hear the media's nonsense and we can hear from firsthand accounts of what she saw and what she heard. And there's so much evidence now because people like Patrick Lancaster and Sonia and have put out so much video. And the video tells consistently one story told over a lot of different people, right? They couldn't, they couldn't j- just get a group of people, hey, tell us pro-Russian lies. There's so many people this story is coming from. It's got to be true, and it is true. And... This is one of the ways this narrative has completely fallen apart. 202-521-1320. Tarif, what is in your mind? How you doing, um, Lee? I have a lot on my mind. <laughs> I have six comments, but I'm, it's going to take a minute to explain them. I mean, it, it, okay. It, it's, gonna be, uh, it, it's not going to be long. First, I'd like to say free journal science. Here I go. Erdogan, they blocked the application of Sweet and Friendly, and Croatian president... Malintov, Malintov is expressing desire to do the same thing with Erdogan. So that's two Europe, you know, NATO countries. Um, Secretary General of the UN is saying that the ha- people, the Europe, have to work with Russia to get food products and fertilizers from Belarus and Russia because, because uh, and also Ukraine. But we all know Ukraine is under, you know, is fighting with Russia and stuff like that. So it's hard to take the Ukraine out. Uh, Ukraine decided to cancel regula- uh, regulations on fuel prices, which is insane 
Now the fuel prices in Ukraine gonna go gonna skyrocket for the everyday people that need petrol, need gasoline for the vehicle. Uh, Russia is talking about this is my second to last comment. I have another one after this. Russia is talking about pulling it out, pulling out the WTO and also the WHO. If they pull out the WTO, that means they, they're gonna ignore ignore the patent laws and they're gonna start producing their own medicines and own gadgets using other patents, which they won't have to obey um, um, uh, uh, the laws no more once they pull out the WTO. And my last comment is dealing with the um, biological labs, the, with the new evidence coming out about that. Russia is planning to, Russia is planning to use Article 5 and Article 6 of the Biological Weapons Convention to investigate the development of bioweapons bio, bio in Ukraine. So that's serious. So once they start using that, then we're going to see what's going to shake. You know, I'm pretty sure they might use it in June once they start having that, um, that, um, the tribunals in eastern Ukraine and the Bash region. So, yeah, thank you all for taking my call. That's all I want to say. I think. A lot of great points there, Sharif, as usual. Thanks very much. The point he made about Erdogan stopping the early application. It was being fast-tracked, the application of Finland and Sweden into NATO. It was being fast-tracked, and Erdogan stopped that. But I should point out that Erdogan's tying it into the issue of the Kurds. And he wants something. Right, Rod? Is, is that obvious that Erdogan's not doing this because he's— which I wouldn't expect him to. He's not doing this because he's pro-Russian. He's sometimes pro-Russian. But sometimes he's not. He's definitely pro-Erdogan, though. And Erdogan is tying this into the Kurdish issue, which means it's a negotiating position. Does that make sense, Ron? Yeah, I saw him mention that he wants, uh, I guess, some type of provisions from uh, that there's PKK terrorists in both these countries. So, Right. And, and it wouldn't surprise me if the NATO capitulates to Erdogan on that. Because they really want to get NATO and Sweden and NATO and Finland hooked up. Because they want that, I wouldn't be surprised if they give it an Erdogan. But this is not a principled stand that having Finland and Sweden in NATO would make the situation more unstable, which I think it clearly would. NATO and Sweden, there's no benefit to those countries to being in NATO. NATO is not protecting them. Russia, Finland and Sweden are under no threat from Russia, right, Rod? Have you seen any fell close banging of shoes on the table? I've seen <laughs> nothing. Right, there's, there's nothing in Finland and Sweden. They're not under any threat, right? Yeah, and the and the and the fact they're not letting the people vote for this either that shows a lot because I don't think either populace of the country would would vote. Well, yes, we want to be a part of NATO and you know further this aggression or possibly cause World War Three. You know what I mean? Like this is just you're just ratcheting up this uh, the tension between NATO and uh, Russia. And I mean they they openly say that they want to weaken Russia. You know we have Lloyd Austin going out and saying things like that. So. This wouldn't make anything better, and I don't know who who sees it like who would see that jo these two countries joining NATO would make the situation any better. 
it, it, it doesn't make them safer because they were under no threat. The U.S. has not overthrown the government of Finland yet. And they had done that with the Ukrainian government and were using it as a proxy. Now, getting to join NATO, also I've seen some people say trying to get Finland and Sweden into NATO quickly seems to be an admission that Ukraine will not join NATO. Have you heard that? Yeah, no, most definitely. I don't think Ukraine's getting in as much as they wanted to and still do. I don't I don't think they're going to get in. Right. And that since they couldn't get Ukraine in, they won't say, well, near, near, near. We got you, Finland and Sweden. And that's almost as good. It's a face saving move on NATO's part. They want to save face, but they don't want to save Europe. And I, I think it's interesting We've noticed this with the COVID situation. The people in Europe are willing to protest to show their displeasure. We saw that all throughout the COVID lockdowns, right? The people of Europe are willing to protest, unlike the people in America, to show their displeasure. And I'd say these, and they haven't been hit with the real, you know, I don't know what petrol is up to there, but once they start to feel the effects of this, and once jobs start going out in Germany, as we point out, they will. And once they see their economies suffering, I think you're going to see big protests over there. And I'm not going to say how that's going to affect things, because we saw the Yellow Vest protests went on for a long time and to no avail. But do you think we're going to see protests, Rod? Oh, I, I I do. I don't know how big they're going to get or how organized to one message, I guess. But I definitely think, you know, a lot of people are noticing the gas, the gas pump hike uh, that keeps going, that keeps going up. There's a gas station in Philadelphia that I guess they're getting ahead of, they're trying to get ahead of it, I guess, because they have uh, their gas price set at 524 even though the average is in, in Philly's around 450, 460. So I guess they're just expecting that that's, where, <laughs> you know what I mean? They're just like, well, this is where it's going to eventually hit. So let's get ahead of it. So. And so the high gas prices here, I don't think results in protests in America, but I can see where basically it's coming to a boil in Europe, Europe, Europeans all over the place in Netherlands, in Germany, in France, have shown their displeasure already for their governments. And I think it's really going to ratchet up. But we'll see. That's a prediction on my part. And it's a pretty easy prediction based on past history and about how bad things are going to get. Because things are going to get very bad for the economy. Here in this country, what we'll do is we'll bitch about it on social media. That's what we do. We don't protest, but the electoral chances of the Democrats, if they were bad before, they're worse now. And I got to say, the $40 billion, it may not be able to help Ukraine. I don't think it's going to have any effect on the war. It may make it last longer, but it's not 
effectively going to turn around for Ukraine. But once that starts hitting the U.S. economy, the inflation that results from that, because don't forget, we don't have the money, so we're printing the $40 billion. As Mark Frost pointed out many times, when we print more money, and Elon Musk was pointing this out the other day, that's pretty obvious what causes inflation. Did you see Ms. Jean-Pierre in her first day talking about, she was asking a question, that's our new press secretary. She was asked a question about how raising taxes on the wealthy cuts inflation. Peter Ducey, did you see see that, Rod? Yeah, I did see it, Lee. And uh, in a way, I felt a little bad for her because she just didn't know any, had no idea what the hell she was talking about. But another way, I just was like, this is just where we are in America, where we have this woman unable to explain what she what she thinks is going to help uh, with inflation, which was 100 percent wrong. Well, because it's an incoherent policy saying that raising taxes on the wealthy is going to cut inflation does not make any sense. I'm not saying you shouldn't raise taxes on the wealthy. That's a separate argument. But there's no effect on inflation. Right. And people who are paying more for groceries right now, they don't care if Jeff Bezos is paying slightly more for his yacht. And Jeff Bezos is fighting back against that. But there's no effect on inflation. And basically, when she was asked about it on her first day in the role as press secretary, she said, well, the president believes that the rich have to pay the fair share and blah, blah, blah. And it was just made no sense. But that's because it's an incoherent policy. She didn't make a policy. She did, I think, the best job she could do defending that incoherent policy. But you agree, Rod, it's incoherent policy. Oh, yeah, 100%. And that's why I said I felt I felt bad for a little bit because, she, you know, she was trying to defend it. And unlike Jen Psaki, who was a little nasty, she, she wasn't able to, you know, she's a little bit nicer but still just as dumb, so. Now, how do you think, speaking of nasty Jen Psaki, how do you think Jen is going to do as an MSABC personality? Do you predict big things ahead? Do you predict she's the next Joy Reid? <laughs> I think she's gonna, her show's going to, it's probably going to start out strong because people, some, you know, some people do like her, you know, I guess there's obviously people, some people like her. So she's going to start out strong, but I see her show being dead last on MSNBC eventually, very shortly. Yeah, I I think it's doing fairly quickly because when it's safe to say, I think she is under the charismatic personality and command of issues as Joy Reid. Who wants to look at Jen Psaki five hours a week? Now, speaking of the media and TV, did you see Chris Wallace? who left Fox a few months ago to join the great success at CNN Plus that folded after a month. Did you see he's going to be back with a Sunday show on CNN? 
Oh, I didn't see. I missed that one for a while. So he's sticking to it. He's going to keep <laughs> sticking to CNN then, huh? Yes, because they have a contract with him. And it makes some sense. They're giving a Sunday evening show. And, of course, for legacy DNA reasons, his father was Mike Wallace with 60 Minutes, the most famous Sunday news show, Sunday night news show on CBS. CNN is going to put Chris Wallace on Sunday nights and help to recapture some of that 60 Minutes ratings magic. But they're not going to recapture any because – First off, CNN has not shown they can program a TV network. Nothing they've done lately has succeeded. And furthermore, I think a lot of CNN viewers don't like Chris Wallace because he was at Fox. Do you agree with me? Oh, and yeah, a lot of sure Fox viewers yeah. didn't like him either. Yeah, they look at it like the Red Sox, Yankees type thing. They look at me, he's, he's the other side. We hate him. So, yeah, I see it like that. Right. But he's announced he's sticking it out with CNN because apparently he's under contract and apparently Fox isn't going to hire him back. I didn't see where Fox was going to hire him back because he was singularly unpopular at Fox News. I heard people talk about how they hated Chris Wallace's guts all the time. Right, Rod, you heard that. They didn't. Fox yeah, think, viewers yeah, did not people, like Chris yeah. Wallace. Yeah, people watched him to see what narrative he was going, what establishment narrative he was going to use. You know what I mean? So, yeah, people did not like him. And also, Chris Wallace was able to get some high-profile guests. So, you know, that happened. And the Sunday shows, people like watching those because they like watching Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. Now, speaking of Chuck Schumer... Chuck Schumer has called on Fox. And what position does he think he's in to call on Fox to do anything? But he's called on them to stop pushing the great replacement narrative. Did you see that, Rod? That Chuck Schumer is making a demand that Fox News <laughs> stop talking about the great replacement. Yeah, I did, I did see that, Lee. And uh, he's he's... Yeah, he's just, he's really brave. I guess that's the the most PG way I could say it. He's really brave for for be able to come out there and say stuff like that when we have a a crisis. You know, what a, a million and a half people have crossed the border already this year. But they're not replacing anyone, Rod. They're just coming over. They're extra people. See, they're, visit, they're, gonna, they're visiting. They're just touring. They're just touring. Yeah, no, that's what's going on, and. Uh, but Chuck Schumer, I thought it was funny virtue signaling. First off, if he's going to talk about the great replacement narrative and getting off Fox, it's a little late, don't you think? Or does he think that if Fox doesn't talk about it anymore, 4chan, this kid, the murderer up in Buffalo, said he was influenced by 4chan. You saw that, right, Rod? Yeah, I did see that. Yeah, I did see that part. He wasn't influenced by Fox. So instead, Chuck Schumer should go to 4chan and suggest they stop talking about it. Now, how do you think that will go over? He'll be memed to death. <laughs> He'll be memed to infinity. Right. right. And in fact, if, if I'd say 
what they should do if they want to make the great replacement narrative go away completely. They should have Chris Wallace on CNN do a series of stories on it. Do you see what I'm saying? If Chris Wallace covers it, no one will hear about it. Get Troy Reed on it. Troy Reed's new show, The Great Replacement, with Troy Reed. That's the way to kill it. But you, by you banning it on Fox, Chuck, all you're going to make is people talk about it more on places like 4chan. Right? Am I, am I missing any calculus here, Rod? Am I doing my social media math wrong? What, what am I missing here? No, you uh, just just like they try to ban Joe Rogan, he's more popular than ever now. You know, the, the fact that you try to ban him has made him more popular internationally and domestically. So same thing with this. And also, this is not, I just don't get it. I don't get how the great replacement narrative equals shooting black people. The great replacement narrative, from what I understand, is not primarily about black people. In fact, not minorly about black people. Right? It was about black people being replaced in many cases because the voter, the Democrats obviously are replacing their favorite minority group. I mean, Democrats have effectively replaced black voters, right? Don't a lot of black people feel that way, Rod? Oh, yeah, 100%. You know, I mean, it's obvious, you know, these conversations aren't covered in the mainstream media, but a lot of people see that, um, especially, especially nowadays, you see a lot of people just walking the streets, whether they might be homeless or they're just not from here. You can kind of tell they're walking with a bag and, you know, some type of like a, a cell phone they just got. These, you know, a lot of people ask, are asking themselves and asking amongst themselves, you know, you know, where are these people from? You know, where are they going to live? You know, and et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, I, you know, I know what you're talking about, Lee. Yeah, maybe Chuck Schumer can get people to stop talking about it. Good luck with that, Chuck. Coming up right after this short break, let's go to Rob Law from the Center for Immigration Studies talking about a misunderstood and ill-understood, not misunderstood, no one's talking about it in the media, how this Ukrainian war is going to affect the important issue of immigration in the United States. Rob Law from CIS right after this short break on The Backstory. back 105.5 FM AM 1390 in Washington DC we're joined now by Rob Law he is one of the writers and fellows over I'm, I'm not sure Rob what are you are you a fellow what are you uh, g- good afternoon thanks for having me my uh, technical title is the director of regulatory affairs and policy but fellow is fellow is good enough <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, but director's pretty good, too, so we don't want to take away from your accomplishments. Rob, thanks for joining us. You have a big new article over the CIS.org website, correct? Uh, Yes, that's right. I've got a couple uh, highlighting uh, various aspects of of Ukraine and what's going on and how uh, this administration is essentially 
trying to not let a crisis go to waste to increase immigration uh, behind the American people's back and without uh, congressional authorization. And the, if I'm wrong, the green card provisions and the changes being made were snuck in along with the $40 billion that everybody's heard about. Everybody's heard about the $40 billion, but they didn't hear about the immigration provisions, correct? Oh, correct. Uh, the, the entire marketing campaign, if you will, of the, the Ukraine bill has been, you know, this is monetary assistance, weapons funding for the Ukraine struggle with Russia. And yet the White House did its best effort to sneak in uh, green cards, uh, not for Ukrainians, uh, mind you, but instead for, if you recall, over last year, last summer, last fall, the disastrous uh, Afghanistan withdrawal where they allowed uh, 70, 80,000, no telling how many Afghans into the country under a mindset of uh, bring them here first and we'll figure out who they are later. So they wanted to give green cards to that population, uh, as well as another provision uh, to allow any Russian who has a STEM degree, which is science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, uh, to basically get a green card on demand. Um, somehow that's supposed to um, you know, weaken Russia's hand in, in the, their conflict uh, abroad. Um, so that, that's what the White House tried to, tried to slip in to the bill. Um, fortunately, it does seem that the negotiators were able to strike those two provisions, but you know it, it just goes to show, and it's an it's an often used adage in Washington, but it's really true that you know an administration doesn't let a crisis uh, go to waste, and it just goes to show that when it comes to immigration, you get fed lines about how popular all these provisions are, and yet everything seems to be done in the dead of night when nobody's looking and they don't talk about it because they're hoping that the American people aren't paying attention. And often does the dead of night at an airport in Westchester County, New York, too. But that's another story. So one thing I've noticed from Kevin covering the Syrian war was when we were letting in Syrian refugees, a lot of those refugees were, I won't say they're al-Qaeda, but they are certainly sympathetic with al-Qaeda. There are people who were displaced by the Syrian war who were sympathetic with the al-Qaeda side. And there was no vetting being done on that. They just talked about Syrian refugees, let them in. Now, Christopher Wray, the director of the CIA, has talked about the danger of white supremacist groups in the U.S. hooking up with Ukrainians. He's testified about that in front of Congress. Is there a potential issue here where some of the people coming in could be those Nazis we've been hearing so much about. Is there any thought? Uh, and by the way, Congress a few years ago in 2016 said we can't give funding to the Azov Battalion because they're Nazis. Congress admitted that in 2016. Are they admitting it now, Rob? Well, no, it, it seems that uh, Congress and this administration has a real short memory when it when it comes to things like that. Um, and when it comes to the special provisions that are actually allowing Ukrainians into this country, uh, they created this very lofty sounding program called Uniting for Ukraine. Now, you know, who couldn't get behind that? And then you you delve into it and say, well, what exactly does that mean? And essentially, this program allows 
any sponsor in the United States, including these non-governmental organizations that don't exactly have you know, the interest of the American people and American workers at heart to sponsor any Ukrainian uh, who is overseas, whether they are in any sort of danger in Ukraine or are already safely settled somewhere else in Europe and bring them to the United States. And once they're here, they're never going to go home. And because there is essentially no eligibility criteria other than being a Ukrainian and having a U.S.-based sponsor, you run a significant risk that there is going to be within the population allowed in. And, and they're talking, this administration is talking 100,000 100, or more um, through this program uh, that there very well could be some of those those bad actors, those, you know, those, you know, the, the Nazi population of, of Ukraine that, you know, used to be the position of the United States government only a couple of years ago, that these were very bad actors that we wanted nothing to do with. Now it seems that uh, our United States government has no problem funding them, uh, weaponizing them, and then even allowing them to come into the United States, uh, despite our immigration law saying that they uh, should not be allowed into the country. No, we've had people like Marco Corey and, and and Andrew Arthur from the Center for Immigration Studies, and we've talked a lot about over the years about the crisis in the courts, the immigration courts. What's their backlog now? Do you remember? Do you know offhand? Uh, so I believe the immigration courts uh, are between three to five hundred thousand right now, um, and I say that. And I give quite a large range because what's critically important is that the the Biden administration is trying to make the backlog go away by these very reckless new policies, uh, which have basically ordered uh, the government's attorneys to just dismiss cases that don't meet uh, certain criteria. And as you can imagine, there are very few cases that they actually want to uh, bring before the immigration judges. So they're making the backlog disappear by simply dropping the charges. Now, that dropping the charges doesn't uh, give somebody a lawful immigration status. It just essentially cuts them loose and allows them to disappear into the interior of, of the country. So it's just, uh, again, every single action that the Biden administration is taking on the immigration front shows a disdain for enforcing our laws, and it shows a disregard for any sort of numerical limitation or eligibility criteria. And so it seems like that part of what was going on with this Ukrainian green card proposal, right, it would have avoided some of those court delays as in making a judgment and just let them in. Is that correct? So, so what you saw uh, tried to occur in, in the Ukrainian funding bill was uh, essentially the Biden administration was trying to launder their past misdeeds on on separate immigration provisions. So the Afghan population, we were told at the time last summer, oh, these guys were all refugees or they were all our allies that helped out meaningfully in the war. Well, if that was true then they would qualify for refugee status or what's known as the special immigrant visa. But the thing is, almost all of them don't qualify for either one of those things. So they've just been cut loose roaming around the country armed with work permits for the last few months. And the Biden administration says, oh, well, everyone is now focusing on Ukraine. Let's just try to <laughs> our mistake and therefore just give these people green cards, let them have lawful permanent resident status and a path to U.S. citizenship uh, because we're the ones that messed up and brought them here in the first place. 
Now, you've talked about a couple of these prisoners were struck down in negotiation. Did anything remain? So the one thing that remained is actually related to Ukraine, and it's that Uniting for Ukraine program that I uh, had mentioned. That uh, If you have a U.S. sponsor, you can come to the United States even though you don't qualify for a visa. Uh, what, what the bill has in it is uh, taxpayer funding of, to the tune of $900 million to help resettle these Ukrainians who, again, don't qualify for a visa of any category, whether that's a green card, a temporary visa of, of any sort. And, and, and that's problematic. And, and what people need to realize is that our legal immigration system is set up as a fee-funded structure. And what that means is the American taxpayers aren't supposed to be on the hook for our legal immigration system. It's just the people who choose to engage in it. So if I want to sponsor my brother, I and he have to pay the fees for it. If I'm an employer and I want to hire a foreign worker, I, the employer, pay for that, not just the American people. And so it's really a betrayal of the construct of our legal immigration system for Congress to put the American taxpayers on the hook to help expedite the processing of these Ukrainians coming in. We're talking up to 100,000, possibly more. Um, and again, the most critical thing is they don't qualify for anything else, no other legal immigration benefit. So uh, essentially, this is uh, an approach of get them here as quickly as possible, give them a work permit, and then the administration will continue to try and find other ways to allow them to remain here permanently, again, in complete uh, disregard to what our immigration laws say. Now, you mentioned a provision that would let Russians come here if they had seven degrees. But that same issue I've I've talked about before. Are are we still at a point where American STEM jobs have remained flat? That's not a lot of people are told go into STEM jobs, go into uh, get college for STEM, and then they did that. But because I think the five hundred one C four program was the five hundred one C four or three that allowed. Um, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? If you're talking about, yeah, if you're talking about nonprofits, that'd be the 501c3s, and then you've got the H1B program, which right, 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 right. I just said the wrong word completely. Is the H1Bs? Yes, they allowed people to come in, and there were a lot of stories about this a few years ago on some of the sites on the right. Uh, that STEM workers were being trained, training their replacements. There's that word again. Right. At places like Disney. Workers were come in and they're replacing American workers and the American STEM workers had to train their replacements. Right. Oh, that's correct. And as a as a condition of any sort of severance, they were these Americans, especially at Disney and, and uh, Southern California. Edison is another example uh, in recent years. Uh, were forced to train their foreign replacement, which if you have to train them, that means they weren't qualified for the job um, uh, right away. And, and they were told to keep shut about it, keep quiet. And so it was actually some real brave, you know, patriotic Americans who were basically willing to forego their severance pay 
and speak out and able to, to shed light on this. And so this is just such a common refrain when it comes to the legal immigration system. There is a very well-funded, you know, Silicon Valley big tech apparatus that has created this myth that there is a STEM shortage. Uh, there's not a STEM shortage. And and how you know that, you can look at that through a couple of different uh, prisms. Number one, STEM wages, particularly in the tech sector, have largely flatlined over the last decade. So if there was truly a shortage, wages should have gone up. And so what instead is happening on the wage front is H-1Bs are replacing American workers, and they're cheaper. And because they're cheaper, any increased productivity or um, just you know reduced payroll expenses just pads the pockets of the, the Silicon Valley executives. So they reap more benefits, the foreign worker reaps more benefits than doing the same job overseas, and the American worker gets squeezed out despite doing everything that they were supposed to do in pursuing these STEM degrees. Additionally, on, on the STEM front, you have year after year after year, American graduates who have STEM degrees, and more than a third of them end up working in non-STEM fields. And that just doesn't happen if there is a STEM shortage. Uh, but instead, it seems like they've wised up after four years of really hard work, you know, for some of these things like physics and engineering and some of the other, you know, true hard sciences, that all that hard work is not going to be rewarded with any sort of, of, of lucrative paying job or, or a job that has promised to climb the, you know, the economic ladder. So the, the actual data clearly refutes this notion, but never underestimate the will of, of a deep-pocketed special interest apparatus to continue to pound that drum. And, and you, you unfortunately hear way too many members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who will repeat this because they've been handed a form that says it's true. And in exchange for that, you know, there come the campaign contributions. And that's really the rub of it was, you know, big tech in particular, they're deep pocketed. Members of Congress love their campaign contributions. And, you know, just unfortunately, the American people are left voiceless and uh, oftentimes displaced as a result. And because big tech lobbies so much, on these issues and spend so much money. And should be pointed out, and again, I spoke earlier, you're right, it was the H-1B visa program. I misspoke. That, that program has resulted in a lot of, uh, talk about the concept of velvet sweatshops. I'm sure you've heard that phrase, but a lot of people might not, might not have heard that. The velvet sweatshop, what is that, Rob? So that is a particular business model. Think of it as a, a staffing company that's just for foreign workers. And so instead of just using any company, uh, you know, we use Disney again. So instead of Disney themselves saying, I'm going to hire 20 H-1Bs, instead they reach out to these companies, which are almost overwhelmingly Indian. Uh, Infosys and Tata are some of the, the most well-known names. And so they contract with, with these, these body shops for their foreign workers. So they come in on a contract basis. So they don't actually show up ever on Disney's payroll. So then, you know, Disney's employees, their American employees are completely blindsided and they don't even realize what's happening until these, you know, 
far lower skilled temporary workers are come in for a job. The Americans who are full-time employees get cut loose. The, the foreign workers do the work for a short period of time, and then they just they move on. They just hop around as, as these big companies uh, you know, utilize them, and, and they avoid any sort of transparency with their American workforce by essentially not directly sponsoring the foreign workers, but utilizing and very much benefiting from them through this third-party arrangement. Now, is there anything in this Russian visa program that would have stopped that sort of situation from happening? Would have stopped American workers from getting replaced by Russians? Because I'll tell you, if you think people are freaked out now, imagine being replaced by a Russian worker. That's going to freak out some people. But is there any provisions in this to keep those problems that were happening and that were affecting American STEM workers, Rob? No, and I'm sorry to interrupt. There's uh, no, there's absolutely no protections for American workers. In fact, there's not even a numerical limit. Um, usually, our green card system has for lawful permanent residents. There's a cap per year, and this allows an unlimited number. Of, this would have allowed an unlimited number of Russians who have a STEM degree, and STEM has been defined so broadly that all sorts of silly things that have nothing to do with the hard sciences now are included within that. And it's just basically the equivalent of stapling a green card. And, you know, as we talked about earlier with some of the the bad actors in Ukraine, there is nothing that ensures that any Russian who happens to have a STEM degree is going to be loyal to the United States. And I mean, if, if I was, you know, a, a nefarious actor and I see that if I can, you know, basically infiltrate in, you know, an adversary by sending some of my people, you know, and they keep their mouths shut. And then all, all basically the American government would be doing is essentially, well, it's almost like a Trojan horse where you're allowing in, you know, Russians with STEM degrees and assuming that therefore they are going to be a hundred percent committed to the United States because essentially we've given them a green card in exchange for their loyalty. And it would not surprise me if this had become included in, in the final package that that Putin would have had some of his allies take advantage of it, get a green card, get access to highly sensitive and critical technological and defense information. And then, where do you think what do you think they're going to do with that? They're going to bring it right on back to to Russia and, and, and to Putin uh, because there's nothing in here that ensures complete fidelity and loyalty to the United States. This is a, a complete rush and overreaction, and it just goes to show that when it comes to the immigration issue, members of Congress, particularly this administration and Democrats in particular, are just, they're not serious about screening and vetting. They just want raw numbers, and they want the numbers to go up, and they are willing to run the risk that there are some bad actors included uh, as long as overall there's just larger numbers of, of workers who get to live in the United States. And even without the bad actors, it's bad for American workers, right? Because even without even without any bad actors, this is bad for people who played by the rules, people who are told you should go to college and get a STEM degree. And then they've gotten one, and now they find there either aren't jobs or, the, as you say, the wages have been flat, and there's no advancement, Right. So this, even without that factor, but but it's shocking as much as Russians have been demonized.
particularly in tight tech areas about cyber hacking or whatever, as much as it had been demonized, that Congress completely avoids what they said two seconds ago about how dangerous and bad Russians were, right? That's right. It seems like when it comes to the concept of cybersecurity, defense, or any other subject, people like to talk really tough, um, particularly targeting specific countries abroad. But then they pivot when it comes to just immigration, and they act like there is absolutely no interconnection between the two. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, any level of increased immigration is good. Well, hang on. Number one, that's not true because you're hurting American workers who we still aren't back to pre-COVID shutdown, you know, you know, economic participation. So there's Americans that need to get back into the workforce, and we should be doing everything we can to create uh, a welcoming environment for that. And then number two, you cannot look at immigration in a silo. It has a nexus to every issue in our economy, including you know, healthcare, other education. And it certainly also has an element of, of national security, cybersecurity concerns, and, and it's frankly reckless for the same people that say, oh, you know, Russians are, are targeting our critical infrastructure with cybersecurity hacks, to then turn around and basically say, well, cyber things fall within STEM, but it's okay. Trust us. We'll figure out that we'll only let the good guys in with green cards. I, I just have no confidence that this administration takes their responsibilities to screen and vet um, people uh, serious, and they're doing a terrible job. They did a terrible job with the Afghan population, as the Department of Defense Inspector General has found, and it runs the risk of us falling into this pre-9-11 mindset again. And, and you would just hate to see another immigration failure, a vetting failure, result in an attack on the homeland. And when you have these types of policies being ushered in and not being debated in front of the American people thoroughly, you, you just continue to run the risk that something like that could happen. Now, Rob, you're an expert on immigration. When you look at the situation, do you see any hidden time bombs? What I mean by that is at the southern border, everyone sees on – you don't see it on CNN, but Fox at least. You see the numbers of people at the southern border. That's an obvious problem. And I think it's fair to say this is the worst administration ever on immigration. Is there an immigration issue that you and the immigration experts at CIS – think people aren't seeing there is enough talk about. Rob? Well, I, I would certainly uh, echo your, your sentiment that this is the worst immigration uh, administration ever. I mean, this is probably the first administration that has ever definitively come out and said that they don't believe that they're required to enforce our immigration laws. You have Secretary Mayorkas literally telling people just being here unlawfully is not grounds for removal. Uh, our, our immigration laws say otherwise. Um, you know, I, I would actually suggest that I, I don't know that the American people are fully appreciating just how grand of a scale the crisis is at the southern border. Now, you saw the optics of the Haitians huddling under the, the bridge. And that is the only time that the administration did anything that looked like enforcement. But their entire plan is to process as many of these illegal aliens into the country as possible. And by doing that, 
it, it obscures it. It hides it. As you mentioned earlier, those midnight flights, people don't see it. You don't realize that over 950,000 illegal aliens have been allowed into the country that we know of by the Biden administration during this fiscal year. And that started October 1. So we still have till September 30th, and we're already up closely approaching a million. But when they're dispersed throughout the country and they, they're, they're taking jobs, they're putting pressure on school systems, healthcare, uh, public transportation, you know, you, you, you start to see it and feel it maybe on an individualized level, but the, the scale is just, it's astronomical. This past month, was the record-setting number of border apprehensions. And you can hear that, and you, and you see that, and it's a large number, but I, I think the optics are just, are just not there. It's only when you have the, these mass huddling events like the, the Haitians that the American people actually realize hey, I, they can visualize the problem. And that's exactly why the Biden administration wants to process them in and cut them loose, where when you zoom out, you, you don't get to see it as, as much on, on the grander scale, but it's, it's incredibly problematic. And where do you think it's going to affect Americans, specifically employment numbers in the next few months, but maybe by the election? Rob? I will certainly, uh, again, this is a pocketbook issue. Uh, you know, you face increased competition for jobs, particularly, you know, what we call blue collar Americans, those at the lower end of the economic spectrum, they're, they're going to face uh, the hardest amount of competition. And then you're going to start to see it in the school systems because these are not taxpayers or to the extent that any of them are working and contributing any amount of taxes, they're going to be, these illegal aliens are going to be taking more services than they're contributing in, in taxes. And the schools are going to be overwhelmed. And it's not like the school budgets are going to be going up. So the places that are, whatever those jurisdictions are that are going to be the, the largest receivers of these economic migrants that are exploiting the asylum system, I, I think the schools are going to be the most um, challenging thing. And, and, you know, parents have become very uh, aware of what's going on in the schools uh, over the last two years on a lot of non-immigration-related issues, but they're seeing, I think they will. And Rob, we're out of time now, but fantastic appearance. CIS.org is a place to go to read more of your work. Well, I'm pretty sure I'm right about that. But Rob Law, fantastic parents. Thanks so much for joining us in Chile in the first hour. Thanks for being on the show. Rod from Philly, our producer, great job. And Tarif, thanks for calling in. Another great appearance by Tarif. We'll be back tomorrow on The Backstory. Backstory.